Today is a great day. I got a, a lot of messages this morning informing me that Ada Limon has now been named our newest national poet laureate. The the tone of the messages varied. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say any was exactly thrilled, but I I have sort of mixed feelings about this one, and it it has to do I guess with with a couple of things. For one, I, so I I did uh, record a, a lengthy segment a few weeks ago about. Uh, Ada Limon's poetry, making fun of her. I, I called her, as Carmine Starnino seized upon, the uh, the thinking woman's rupee cower. I uh, I don't take back anything I said about her poetry. It's not for me, but I, you know, I don't, I can't find it in me, I can't find it in myself to be mad at her or to resent her. She, partly just because she seems so nice. You know, I don't think, when I think about Ada Limon, uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't really want to read her poems. But you know, as I said in that episode, I think the people who say they like her poems do like her poems. I think people do take pleasure from them. I think they speak about them in sometimes unnecessarily lofty terms. I think that if you read the uh, the, the 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 assignment of the poet laureateship as a uh, the laurel. I don't know how, how you the, the 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 poet's laurels. You know, if you read that as a as a recognition of of great artistic merit, then this announcement seems a little bit silly. You know, if you were, if you were to understand it to mean that she is the best poet in America, well, I, I think you know, I, I it's hard to be. It's hard to be any matter about that than it is about Amanda Gorman's assi- uh, 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 appointment to read a, a poem at the inauguration. I think that, you know, plenty of people genuinely like Ada Limon's poetry. And I don't think that she's a fraud. I think she writes poems that she, I think she writes the best poems she thinks she can write. And I think a lot of people enjoy them and buy her books and 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 recommend her books or give them to people out of a genuine desire to share their pleasure with others. And that all seems pretty, like, pretty right-headed, like kind of the right thing to happen with poetry. It's just that there isn't that much to it. But, you know, it occurred to me, I thought, I thought, like, all right, so how would I feel about this if, if instead of Ada Limon, it were Ocean Vuong or Ben Lerner or Kava Akbar, to pick three obvious names. And I think... You know, I, <laughs> I, I don't think I could be as sanguine about it as I can be with Ada Limon, just because I don't feel the same basic fondness. I mean, she just seems like such a sweet, good person, you know, and and so well-meaning. Like, I don't think there's any denial or bad faith going on with her, or with. I mean, I think the only bad faith is going on with her admirers is when they try to convince themselves that this is important art or high art of some kind but if it's just if it's just as uh, i think jonathan pointed out this is an honest to god poetic guilty pleasure which a while ago i i perhaps foolishly claimed did not exist this is a poetic guilty pleasure if you just accept it as such you know i think i think like with pop music we don't have any trouble doing that and if i think if if a pop musician of a, of the of the guilty pleasure producing variety was named to some sort of high office. I mean, that's the thing. We don't have a a pop musician. We don't have a pop musician laureateship uh, because we don't need to. 
because the poet laureateship is, is another example, I guess, of a kind of, uh, uh, as, as uh, Alice and Brian have pointed out, a sort of an artistic, a, an art generic affirmative action program, right? Like, like it's important that we all remember and think about and, and read more poetry. And that's why we have a, a poet laureateship, I guess, because you don't need to do that with the actually popular art form. So I don't really, you know, both because she seems like, like probably a nice person and because she, I think, is doing what she believes she's doing. Maybe she thinks it's a little more serious or, or refined or lasting, than it is, but I think I don't think she's really in denial about anything. I think uh, I think there's a lot of denial at work with Ocean Vuong and Ben Lerner. Maybe not with Kava Akbar. I think he may be he may be more self-aware than the other two. I kind of suspect. I think he's maybe I think he's maybe a little more cynical. I think there's some I think there's some deep roiling denial with with our other boys, <laughs> Ocean and Ben. Uh, but with, with Ada Lamont, I think she's in pretty good faith with herself. I also, I mean, this is the, really the other question, is what is the poet laureateship, right? I don't think you get paid. If you do, I mean, good. Like, I, she's making money where there were, fine, whatever. Uh, I, but I don't think it's really, there's really much money. It's a lot of honor. Certainly, she's going to sell more books as a result. She's going to, you know, be able to command speaking fees. So in that sense, there's some some real financial compensation. She's also, though, going to, like, head up national programs to try to get kids to read more poetry, which, you know, I think can be good and can be bad, but it's not really something I would want my favorite poets to be doing. You know, I, I, there have been plenty of mediocre poets named to the Poet Laureate before. Billy, Billy Collins obviously, you know, leaps to mind as are, you know, in plenty of others uh, in that, in that vein. Um, but you know, I don't think I would want my favorite poets to have that office because most of, mostly what that would guarantee is that they wouldn't really be writing much poetry in those years. Probably they would be doing something else. And, you know, in most cases, what I really want my favorite poets to be doing is, is writing poetry. Uh, Alicia Stallings won a MacArthur Genius Grant several years ago. And that, you know, to me, that was a cause for unalloyed uh, uh, celebration because all it meant was that she got a shitload of money and uh, and it made her life easier because she was, you know, she in a self-deprecating way described herself as a Greek housewife in those years. So it you know, certainly made it easier for her to do some good work. Uh, I had more mixed feelings when she ran a few years later against Simon Armitage for the Oxford professorship of poetry. He ended up winning uh, as you know, and, and a lot of Eratosphereans and other formalists uh, in America were were sad that she wasn't, you know, she didn't finally win. I don't know, you know, I I think the as as Cameron has pointed out, the the you know, Oxford professor of poetry is a little bit more of a substantial position than you know poet laureate either of of the UK or of the US. Uh, and I think that in the case of that particular position and in the case of that particular poet, you know, Stallings, in addition to being an excellent poet, is a is actually a, a, a pretty good scholar and, a, and a, a, a delightful essayist. And so, you know, the product of that assignment is really, you know, 12 public lectures, you know, that, that may end up later going into a kind of a book. And that, I think, in her case... Is something she could have done quite well. I just, you know, I read Armitage's own 
Oxford poetry professor lectures recently, and they're fine. I'm so I, I owe Ryan a review of them. It's going to take me a minute to get it together, but you know, not mind blowing, but fine. I think Jeffrey Hill probably wrote less poetry while he was writing his lectures, but his lectures are great, and so I'm glad he did it. And in Stallings' case, like yeah, I think on balance, she actually could have turned out some pretty great lectures. So maybe that would have been good. But you know, if you nominated her for poet laureate. I think I would say, I hope not. Like, I hope she doesn't get it. Uh, not because she's not, you know, 10 times the poet, a Lamona's, but just because I would rather she write poetry. Uh, I hope that makes some sense. Anyway, to, by, by my lights, the very best take on this whole affair was the one I got from uh, our good friend Shane, who, who simply wrote, let me pull it up, uh, who simply wrote this morning, OMG, Lamon is the poet laureate. Guess you're going to jail. <laughs> Thanks, Shane. Right as fucking always. There is a heaven, forever, day by day. The upward longing of my soul doth tell me so. There is a hell, I'm quite as sure. For pray, if there were not, where would my neighbors go? That is a short poem called Theology by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and this is Slyricates. Thank you all for listening. I wanted to start this week's episode with a poem, uh, partly because it's 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 right on topic, but also because most of of this episode is going to fall into the other intractable problems category. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have been hesitant to put this out. I'm very, I, I think this is a really fun, I, I had a lot of fun with this episode. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting episode. I enjoyed it. It's a two-parter. The first part's going to be here on the main feed and the second part is going to be on The Secret Show. It is a big, messy episode. It is one that if you are, uh, if you are the, the uh, one listener who really doesn't care for Brian. I don't know if you'll like this one or not. The topic was inspired by the work of two or three poets. One of them, an 18th century Italian genius who celebrated the world over, and one of them, a contemporary American poet who is very well known, but only in conservative circles. Uh, but there's very little poetry in today's episode. There is a little bit more than usual of what I generally try to avoid, which is politics, but that's maybe only because we also talk about uh, religion, which is one of the other things you're not supposed to bring up at the table. Initially, this was going to be an episode about belief or about rather about uh, the existence of God or not. 
And, and oddly enough, it ended up being an episode more about the beliefs of others or how we, how we consider, how we feel about the beliefs of others. This is the most Brian and I have ever disagreed on this show or maybe outside this show. It was pretty intense. And uh, the second part includes my vain attempt to smooth things over, which ended up only inflaming them all the more. So we are, we are still very good friends. We get along quite well and we are on excellent terms, even in this conversation. But we do really strongly disagree. We don't disagree about our politics or our vision of the universe. We do very strongly, however, disagree about the beliefs of others. So I used to listen to this podcast uh, on Slate that was all about parenting. I can't remember what it was called, but it was uh, hosted by, I believe, Allison Benedict and Dan Coes, or Coes, I don't know how to say his name. In any event, he, he sort of notoriously in one episode of this podcast said something that got him a lot of, he wasn't necessarily proud of it, but if he was honest with himself, he had to acknowledge that he felt a certain amount of disdain for parents who stay at home with their kids rather than uh, working for money outside the house, or I guess inside the house. But he, he, had, he, he confessed a disdain for stay-at-home parents. Now, when I heard this, it fucking infuriated me. I was so angry about this. It made me really dislike him. And it just made my uh, blood boil. Now, Allison Benedict, if, if memory serves, objected to what he said, and he got a lot of grief from other listeners about it. As time went on, though, you know, I, it occurred to me that I was actually sort of grateful for what he had said. Not because I think he's right, to have disdain for stay-at-home parents, but because I think he's really, really far from being alone. I think a lot of people have disdain for stay-at-home parents. I, mean, I think particularly a lot of people in his, in in the in the kind of world that he exists in, of upper middle class, uh, educated liberals who have every reason, who have been thoroughly trained to. Uh, look on all uh, uh, lifestyle, socioeconomic uh, parenting choices with with equal favor and uh, with with an absolutely egalitarian vision of the, the of work and lifestyle and child rearing. And yet, as he acknowledged, he felt deep down uh, a, an unavoidable contempt for people who made this particular choice. And I was really, you know, I, I now looking back, I'm really glad that he said that. It's one of the reasons I uh, got to like Chapo Trap House, which I know lots of people dislike for lots of very good reasons. But part of what I, I really appreciated about them early on was that they were willing to say something about men in my generation that Oddly, a lot of other people dance around. A lot of other people, plenty of people complain about millennials. Plenty of people complain that 
that that men or the patriarchy or white men in particular are fucked up or have problems um, or are mediocre and uh, and overly self confident and all these and and there's truth to all of that. Uh, but what the guys of Chapo Trapos were willing to say was simply that we're failures. They just used the word failure. And hearing that spoken aloud in frank terms was refreshing. So <laughs> I promise I'm not buttering you up to try to convince you to like me despite terrible things I'm going to say. In fact, I suspect that the people who will get angriest at me for this episode are going to be the people on the liberal end of things. We do talk about atheism. We talk about religion. We talk about Catholicism versus Protestantism. We talk about uh, Judaism, secular Judaism, kosher laws. We talk about abortion. We talk about Marxism. We talk about gun control. And again, we talk about <laughs> Biden and Obama. <laughs> Uh, Trump, I think. Yeah, we do mention Trump at some point. We talk about uh, northern snobbery. A lot of things come up. But again, I think the, the goal, the aim, the heart of the whole question is what we think of the beliefs of others when we genuinely disagree. It's one thing to say you, uh, you tolerate others or you celebrate diversity or... Uh, to shrug at you know trivial beliefs or disagreements that don't don't especially matter minor preferences, but when you have a fundamental disagreement about the nature of reality with someone else, I think it's a I think it's a difficult question what that actually means for how you view that person, and that is what Brian and I end up getting into in pretty messy depth today. So I hope that you will appreciate our conversation. I hope I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed having it. And as I said, I thought it would be nice to start this episode out with a poem. So once more, this is Theology by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Part of what I like about this poem is that he he wrote a lot of very straightforwardly Christian poetry. He was a he was a Christian, and he wrote plenty of poems that that fairly straightforwardly forwardly celebrate Christ and mercy and forgiveness and God's willingness to to accept uh, the the flaws of his children and so on. Part of what I like about this uh, poem, I started I, I read this poem at the beginning of a reading recently, and um, and I, and I said at the reading a little bit glibly that I liked this poem because he was mean in it. And he does have some good mean poems. There's another one called Prometheus I want to read at some point that's just really funny about contemporary poetry. But in this one, he he is, you know, he does take a crack at his neighbors. But, you know, I think the real butt of this joke is the speaker. There is a heaven forever, day by day. The upward longing of my soul doth tell me so. There is a hell, I'm quite as sure. For pray, if there were not, where would my neighbors go? And there's a nice, you know, there's there are a couple of nice things about this. The the you know the double entendre of pray, the the fact that the the first line is metrically 
uh, more ragged than the, the, the third line. The second line has a whole extra foot when compared to the fourth line, so that as with XJ Kennedy's Nothing in Heaven Functions As It Ought, the, the rendering of the paradise is uh, more metrically irregular and inconsistent than the, the slick and efficient vision of hell. But here, you know, I think there's another nice uh, symmetry in that what indicates to the speaker that there is a heaven is the feeling in his soul, the upward longing of my soul, his desire to ascend. That's what actually informs him that, that this celestial afterlife is waiting for him. And then similarly, what makes him so sure that there is a hell is his feelings about his neighbors, which he doesn't even have to explicitly name. They are they are clear enough to us already. I like this poem because it's funny, it's snappy, it's smart, it's elegant, but also because, you know, he is not merely taking a crack at his neighbors, nor is he merely taking a crack at people who believe in heaven and hell. I don't take his rendering of the speaker's faith as being cynical. I mean, I think he he had faith. I think he's laughing at himself without disavowing himself. I think he can recognize that he does believe in heaven and maybe he believes in hell too. Uh, but also these beliefs are tied up in some feelings that he has that may be a little more terrestrial in nature. Anyway, Brian and I get into a lot of that in our conversation. I'm gonna talk in depth about all of the source material, uh, but again, if you are a member of the very small but disproportionately influential faction of Slee Ricketts listeners who uh, lives in my house and would prefer that on the podcast we do nothing but agree with each other and talk about reality television, then this episode might not be your favorite. But I hope you may, I hope, I hope at least uh, some of you will enjoy it. And, and, and for those of you who really want to get back to the poetry brass tacks, uh, I promise I will have some very uh, crunchy poetry focused episodes uh, coming for you very soon now. And again, the first half of, half of this conversation is going to be on the main feed and the second half is going to appear on the secret show. So you just go to sleerickets.substack.com. You can sign up for a very cheap monthly rate of 250 to get access to this and a slew of other bonus episodes. Enough stalling. <laughs> Here is the episode that uh, might finally shut this podcast down. I hope you enjoy it. The, so there's a little bit of a backstory to this weird, highly divisive episode. I figure like given that I've done a really good job of like inadvertently cultivating a loyal base of like conservative Christians. Like, you know, like, yeah, totally well, I, that, that's what I was wondering. Like, not only do you have for conservative Christians, but it seems like you have like truly like listeners who like and respect you who are conservative Christians. So is this the way to just blow that up? Um, so, so I also think and I will have like weird disagreements about this. I mean, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I, I think that that the the core of our difference is I can think of, I think, one person with whom I occasionally interact 
whom I believe might believe in God. <laughs> so if I if I occasionally interact with say 500 people, right? I think one of them says he believes in God, but I don't know. And, and he's, he's a He's very he's an conservative I'm sure. priest. Very Republican, I'm sure. And, and, no, 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 no. Yeah, he is, he's certainly and, a, a <laughs> d- Democrat, but he, he's no. an Episcopal priest. Other than him, right. in, and and in this, I include my own rabbi. Um, I don't right. think I know anybody who believes in God. So I, I think that that might be a, a main difference, d- differentiator between our approaches on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, 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 we also live in a very liberal bubble here. Uh, but it's just by virtue of being in the South, it's definitely more friendly to, like, I know a lot of sort of cash believers and then some very devout ones. And I grew up in a, like a very religious community and, and again, like in Atlanta, which is not the South, the South, but which is a lot more the South than New York is. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a religious community as well, not, not community in a religious family. I mean, my maternal grandparents kept a, an entirely kosher home and mm. like both my parents grew up knowing they would marry another Jew. My great grandparents didn't speak any English. They, they just spoke Yiddish on my mother's side. And like the Judaism is, if not, you know, core, if, if, if not the entirety of their uh, self-conception, certainly core to it. So I... Yeah, but the, but Judaism uh, also is like not just faith, right? I mean, it's this other Well, right. Thing. And that that I think is is where I've been able to differentiate pretty clearly. Like I, I also think Judaism is something from which I couldn't run away. Like you meet me and five minutes later, you know, I'm a New York Jew. So like what, what would what happens in five minutes? Like you, I feel like they you hear either me know pronounce instantly. Some words and they well, no, but like, you at, know, like very soon, oh. you know, like never. Like Joanna well, would I never know, speak. or you were like, Joanna think, would think I you're think... in the mafia. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just sort of generally white ethnic. Joanna's still all non wasps are black. Like it's, it's, <laughs> right. we have not yet, we have not yet become white in her Indeed. conception. Yeah. Um, but no, I uh, am interested in, in how we are going to agree and, and disagree. We're going to discuss an atheist tract um, entitled Why I Am Not a Christian, written in 1927 by Bertrand Russell. And then we are, or maybe before, in, in some order, we are also going to talk about M- James Matthew Wilson's essay in the Catholic World Report, which I'd like to hear more about, entitled <laughs> science prayer and the density of being which was like written yesterday um yes and what is your and, and it's you not have, a totally any... fair matchup because bertrand russell is like one of the leading logicians of the 21st 20th century and like wrote the principia mathematica and was like ludwig wittgenstein's teacher and james <laughs> wilson is a very smart young poet critic guy but it's but like i also think like i think they're more similar than 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 you might and uh and and also like any, like I only looked at, I only read the, the Why I'm Not a Christian and recommended it to Brian because I had heard the title of it before. So if there are any like thoughtful religious people who think like, oh, you should really be comparing it to this, recommend that. However, don't recommend the fucking Summa Theologica because I want to read, like I want something short I can read for an episode. I don't want right. to read like a 500 right. page thing that I can then <laughs> cogitate on. For, like I, this is a fucking podcast, so recommend something but short. Why are we doing this at all? Like what, what is... Okay, well, I can tell you why it came, why, like, why it got stuck in my craw. And it's Please. actually a poetry reason. Uh, so 
my I, because I only read read uh, periodicals that mention my name. I um, uh, <laughs> I my uh, good friend Ryan re- mentioned me mentioned my my book very nicely in a letter to the editor of First Things Magazine, which is a very Catholic magazine. It's also like a very like learned magazine. So, so he he I'm, his mention of me is not actually important in this case. He mentioned it in response to this essay on Leopardi. He's a great Italian poet. I've read not nearly as much of Leopardi as I should. Really good essay on him. It's called Nihilism for the Ironhearted. It's by Algus Valunis. It came out in the June twenty two or April uh, twenty two issue, uh, and then a couple months later, Ryan wrote this letter in. I'm going to save Ryan's letter because I feel like after all of the vitriol, we may need a, a moment of like like salve and solace um, from him. But um, I read Ryan's nice note. I read the original article. And then Valunas, like a dick, wrote a letter back to Ryan in which the gist of the letter is like, actually, nice try, Mr. Wilson, uh, and good effort. But we should look down on atheists and pity them and not read them because reading them is actually eight is dangerous. And he says, unbelief rarely stems from disinterested clarity. Hey, <laughs> hold, hold on. What's going on, Ellie, baby? I'm having this meeting. What's going on, baby? So after a brief interruption from my adorable but annoying children, so Valunas writes in his just infuriating letter to the letter to the editor, unbelief rarely stems from disinterested clarity. Hate tends to have a lot to do with it. And most haters of God have a particular grievance that clouds their thinking. Just fucking infuriating. Infuriating. So I, I am, I am. I think we we have to continue the meta conversation just for another like ten <laughs> seconds until we. No. You're surrounded by people who sincerely believe these things. Like one of your closest friends believes yeah. that like Jesus was a human and yes. also a God, right? And I did believe that for still most of my life. But how does that, how is that tolerable to you? Oh, but how do you find yourself that you're not constantly um, uh, humoring or placating? I think most, Ryan has a thing about atheism and and true, like faux atheism versus true atheism. I think like very few people actually believe anything. And like most of the thing, like whether you're nominally a believer in God or nominally an atheist or agnostic or whatever, like mostly you're just sort of serving your pseudo Freudian self-interest. And like, there's a thing I want to talk about later, which I think both of these essays like really, really badly mix up, which is what we wish were true versus what we think is true. Yes. And I, I, yeah. I had the exact same note, especially on your boy, uh, James. Matthew oh, yeah. Yeah. Wilson. He does. He does it. I, but, I think Russell does it more subtly, but I think they both do it. And it's and I think that's what most people who say they believe or don't believe anything do most of the time. OK, that's a good answer. Uh, the, you're, the reason why you're able to live in a world full of believers is you live in a world full of every sort of people and you don't think that yeah. believing in Christ matters particularly compared to believing in the Republican party or believing in angels or believing yeah. in or that like, animal like, in reincarnation right. or like, like hardcore dedicated Marxist beliefs have a similarly utopian kind of trajectory that like, I think I find a lot of it credible and convincing and a lot of it batty and, And I like, just as with Christianity, like I find a lot really credible and valuable and I grew up with it, but I also find a lot of it to be fucking insane. 
I, we, we should probably start with the Russell because it is just because it comes like a hundred years earlier. Um, so this is uh, Bertrand Russell had this. It was originally a lecture he gave to the South London branch of the National Secular Society in Battersea Town Hall on March sixth uh, in on, in 1927. He gave this lecture called "Why I Am Not a Christian." Uh, so you yeah. assume that based on um, the group to to whom he's speaking, that they believe not dissimilarly from what we believe that he is. Uh, forgive this in, in pun intended he, he is preaching to the choir right just as yeah i think so. the the anti-choir and i think most yeah. of what he's doing is trying to entertain yes and i think he does a pretty good job of that um oh there's some great uh, lines oh there's some it's really very, funny it's very lines. yeah the one big advantage this has over the the james matthew wilson apart from being mostly i just agree with it more is it's a lot funnier why, why don't you explain what his basic framework of argumentation sure. is and then we can delve into the the specifics yeah, so he starts in, I think, a pretty reasonable way with uh, with an attempt to define Christianity. And he actually does something similar to what C.S. Lewis does in his book, Mere Christianity, um, which is to say, well, they're Christian. Can, lots of people are Christians, and that means a million different things to different people. But it might be worth kind of identifying the lowest common denominator. Like it, you, you must at least have this in order to be a Christian. And he, you know, you can argue about what about whether he gets it right or not, but he says that to be a Christian, you must one believe in God and immortality, and two believe that Christ was, if not divine, at least the best and wisest of men. So, like, if you, he, you know, you may and probably do believe lots of other things and do lots of other things, but you, if you don't at least believe both of those things, he would say it's it's really hard to call you a Christian in anything other than a demographic sense. I feel like the first one, you must believe in God and immortality, is very sensible in defining um, what a Christian is. Mm -hmm. I think you must believe that Christ was, if not divine, at least the best and wisest of men, is almost entirely a setup to a series of punchlines that he will deliver later on. Yes, and I should say that there are... Uh... I, I want to say a few different Christian writers and thinkers have said versions of this. I'm sure somebody said it first and best, but the, the, the Christian response to arguments that like, well, Jesus had a lot of good points, but you know, like which plenty of secularists do say the, 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 the classic Christian response to that is no, either he was God or he was a madman. Right. Ex exactly. Exactly. And, and that that's why you have to believe that Jesus, if not divine, was yeah. the wisest of yeah, men. That, right. Feels like a He's straw man ridiculous up. setup because yeah. I but he also has some get he gets some pretty good punchlines out of it. Oh, 100 percent. I, I yeah. just think that it's the, the first argument is him actual actually doing argumentation. Yeah. And the, uh, the the second part is him setting him up to do shtick. So yes. if he sets up as these are the two um, things you must believe to be a Christian. How does he argue that right. therefore you have to be a fool to be a Christian? Yeah, so he doesn't really address immortality. He addresses immortality, I guess, sort of obliquely at most, but mostly his his essay is about, or his lecture is about different. He doesn't say he's gonna address all of the arguments for God because there are God knows how many, but you know there are, there are a number of prominent arguments for God's existence. And he kind of addresses several of those. And then he turns to, Okay, well, apart from that, was Christ both the best and the wisest of men? And I think, actually think he makes a lot of, for being a logician, he makes some pretty big logical missteps in his, particularly in that second part, 
But for sure, he he talked. You know, I don't think we need to break through break down all of his arguments against the arguments because, in part, like as he even acknowledges, like rational arguments for the existence of God feel a little bit like a necessarily post hoc exercise. Like totally, and a lot yeah. of his argumentation is um, varieties of the first cause argument. Yeah, where a lot of a lot of what he returns to, he he says that they're different. Like, how can you prove? Um, there's the natural law argument, which is like, we say things are so great, but like, they're not really so great. So, yeah. how, you know, you, we could do something like with God, a, a, a argument from design, things seem like they're designed really well, but like there are other examples of why they could be designed well. And it, it, the yeah. first cause argument, um, which was it a, a um, Aquinas who loves the first cause argument? Uh, sorry, I really should not be doing this because I know that. <laughs> Whoever is listening to you is like poking fucking <laughs> sticks and needles in their in and their that inner sums ears up Thomas to, Aquinas. Yeah, and the, is is Aquinas the first cause guy? And like one, he's not, and two, like he wrote a gazillion pages, and like people believe their entire lives defined by what this guy thought about things. So I will take a step back from that, and I'm not going to name check Aquinas. Um, but the, his basically with the first cause is like, well, if God made everything, who made God? Which is like a a very obvious retort to right. God being the first cause. Yeah. Um, he, he's less interesting as a logi logician here as throughout as he, than he is as a, a rhetorician. He he says in his one his, in his one uh, knock on the Hindus, mostly it's mostly he takes on the Christians. <laughs> he says it is exactly of the same nature as the Hindus' view that the world rested upon an elephant and the elephant rested upon a tortoise. And when they said, "How about the tortoise?" the Indian said, "Suppose we change the subject." Like Which I don't is, know, yeah. I don't, I don't think a lot of Hindus would, would be like, "Yep, that pretty much sums up my religious <laughs> no. belief." No, no, I mean, thing that's on a and smaller like, thing. And on the smaller thing, let's go yeah. have lunch. Like I don't. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is just sort of like he, he's just very dry and and funny and not necessarily giving anybody a fair shake, but that's not necessarily his point, as you said. He's, he's, he's mostly trying to entertain people who already agree with him, I think. So there are, there are two um, defenses of believing in God that I have come across in my life that I find are uh, tolerable. Okay. One, one of them I probably incorrectly um, associate with William James, and another one I probably incorrectly <laughs> associate with my rabbi Josh. Okay. So what I am going to say is the William James's argument, which I am certain was both not written by William James and is not a good form of the argument, is that like, it's like the leave me alone. I've had some experiences. Those experiences were religious. You can't tell me they weren't. So go away. And I believe in God. Yeah. You know, I... I and that's like, all right, like, I don't. Yeah, well, like, that's a good response to somebody who's trying to proselytize atheism, right? <laughs> right. Like, if you're trying to convince someone not to believe in God, then like, I let me live my life is a pretty good response to that. Right. Right. But that's not the same thing as saying like, like, leave me alone because I've had religious experiences and this is how I like understand reality is different than saying like, let me make you believe because I've had totally, right? totally, yeah. totally. It, it, it falls short of that. But but me, I'm, I'm really like um, I'm being as generous as I can be here. And yeah. and for me, somebody saying like, I believe and, and also faith fits in that. Like I mm -hmm. if it's just like I have faith, like there's nothing yeah. you can you, you can say about that. No. Yeah, like, yeah. all right, that's cool. Like you have faith. And I I in my 
I think part of the reason why I'm so um, fairly or unfairly dismissive towards truly religious people who have had access to non-religious institutions. Like I, I am not particularly bitter towards fundamentalists in terms of their belief because they were, they are, they are for the most part sheltered from secular life by their parents and teachers and cultures and societies. And therefore it seems totally reasonable to believe what everyone you've ever thought highly of have, has, has told you. And, I well, have, and, and there's, there are different stripes of, because you're, when you're talking about fundamentalists in that way, you're talking about like, like, I'm talking about Hasidic Jews, Hasidic or Jews, and like who, like uh, like Amish and yeah. like extreme uh, fundamentalist Muslims in some exactly. places. I guess that I don't blame people who are cut off from the rest of society for their yeah. beliefs. Um, sure. Again, not a particularly dramatic statement, but if if you want to say like I've been visited by angels, so I believe in the Bible, like I'm cool with that. And if you yeah. want to say I have a faith that that doesn't comport to any you know logic or your life I'm, I'm totally cool with that also i think one of the reasons i am dismissive and at my ugliest in this conversation is i've had i, I was desperate to believe from the ages of i don't know uh, 12 to 16 you know like i was i was going around trying to find a way to believe any of this could possibly plausibly be true and i and i couldn't so i think i fairly or unfairly associate a lot of believers with a less sophisticated version of my 15 year old self and my 15 year old self was like the most despicable person i've, I've ever met so i i feel like there is a um a, a difficult um obstacle i i need to get around to have this conversation kindly yes so anyway the the first um category i'm falsely attributing to william james which is like i have my own thing Mm -hmm. I believe in this stuff. Yeah. And it's a lot bigger than William James, yeah. but that's probably but where it's I hard to argue the most compelling way. For right. the sake exactly. of personal belief. Yeah. My my second type of belief, which uh, probes a little bit more aggressively, is the saying I don't believe in God, a, a counterpoint that Josh Stanton, who is the rabbi of my synagogue and whom I really like and respect, says is like, in what God do you not believe? is his counterpoint. And sure. it is He's sort of saying like, so you don't believe in a anthropomorphized arbiter and ruler of all things, you know, I, like neither did, does he. And you don't believe yeah. in a omniscient, omnipotent and benevolent God, like neither does yeah. he. But do you believe? And then then you can reach some point where religion, hard religion is yeah. sort of un undifferentiatable from like consciousness or or, yeah. or secular morality or like the fact that there's value in our, in our life. And like, I do believe in versions of that. And if you want to push me, like when you, th that, that consciousness or like trying to be kind is just my vocabulary for religious people using the word God, like I'm okay with that also, you know, yeah. I, but that, that defangs almost all of it for me. But, but again, I don't think the purpose of, of religion should be defanging atheism. So I, I, I have, that, that fits into the category that, that you said um, I was talking about earlier also, which is like, yes, that's a decent point against pure secular um, atheism, but it doesn't speak on behalf of religion particularly well. No, and, and I think it, it 
you know, certainly where where I think Russell gets his hook in pretty accurately is like that does do away with immortality. And like that's so much part of the bargain for so many believers, not Jews traditionally, I know. Immortality is where everything falls apart. Like I, I spent a lot of time thinking that Buddhism might make sense, you know, because mm -hmm. the life is suffering and trying not to focus yeah, on yeah. suffering. Like that corresponds more to my vision of the world than Judaism in some ways and Christianity for sure. But really, Buddhism only works with some type of reincarnation or some type of higher uh, consciousness. And I guess you can reach higher consciousness in this life without reincarnation, but so much of the value of that consciousness, that higher plane of consciousness is to no longer be in that cycle of, of reincarnation. And like, why would reincarnation be true? Like, why would heaven be true? Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. like that's that's where it all falls apart to me. Yeah. And I don't I don't see. Um, James Matthew Wilson, but it's a lot to put on James Matthew Wilson. I, I don't I've, I've never heard an argument on behalf on behalf of um, life beyond life that that has been at all satisfying no. to me at no. all. No. Have you? No, I mean, the probably the best arguments I've heard are like Socrates as ventriloquized by Plato, but I don't find him convincing. Like they're they're like get close to sort of like pure arguments but they still to me it, it gets like, it gets close to sophistry which is what they always yeah. claim well, they're yeah. they're the opposite of socrates right? does a lot I, of sophistry yeah. right that's that's fair but but i would yeah. put the religious talk within that yeah, oh definitely that definitely. sophistry like, I, I find it like, not convincing but i find it more respectable as an argument than than a lot of arguments for so bertrand russell argument. takes a lot of cracks at christ um which yes. is which is funny. Um, yeah. He, yeah. He, he titles this section Defects in Christ's Teachings. Um, and he says how like it's fucked up to believe in hell because like that's a, valicious, uh, a vicious, inhumane just thing to think about humans. But yeah. he gets really funny when he starts to, like quoting Christ. You know, you, you will find in, in Gospels, Christ said, ye serpents, ye generations of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Um, and then out of quotes, Russell says, uh, that was said to people who did not like his preaching. <laughs> it is not really to my mind quite the best tone. <laughs> like he's like he, he's, you know, to, to quote ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. And then to take yeah. a step back and saying, like, I don't approve of that register there or or. Um, then Christ says, the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, unquote. And then Russell writes, and he goes on and on about the wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I think my like, favorite of these is there is the instance of the gathering swine where it certainly was not very kind to the pigs to put the devils into them and make them rush down the hill to the sea. You must remember that he was omnipotent and he could have made the devils simply go away. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like the fig tree one more, though. The fig tree, where yeah, yeah. Christ is like irrationally furious about the fig tree. So yeah. he comes to it and he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, unto it no man eat fruit of the tree hereafter forever. And Peter saith unto him, Master, behold, the, pig tree, the fig tree uh, which thou cursedest is withered away. And then Russell comes in and says, this is a very curious story because it wasn't the right time of year for figs. And you couldn't really blame that on the tree, like which is yeah. Yeah. both 
I mean, I, I think the, the funny line there is quoting like a biblical wrath and exaggeration and then yeah. following it up with like demure British yeah, it's culture. the it's like it's the a, it's the what com comedy writers call like the high low contrast, right? Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. he's like a good. He's a good. He has good shtick. That's what you know. Uh, exactly. I think, I think he may, like as a logician. I think there are a ton of problems with a bunch of these arguments. Like I, I think I think for one, the he he super messes up the like he makes a point earlier that it's ridiculous to believe that there must be a heaven and a hell because the world is so unjust that in order for there to be justice, there must be uh, an afterlife in which things become, where, where things become just. And he has a great line about- um, Are you talking about the oranges? The oranges, yeah, that's another. He says, supposing you got a crate of oranges that you opened and you found all the top layer of oranges bad, you would not argue the underneath ones must be good so as to redress the balance. You would say probably the whole lot is a bad consignment. And, and I think like that's, that's reasonable thinking. But then later on, he says, it is so despicable of Jesus to believe in hell because what a mean thought. It would be so mean for there to be a hell. I think, well, that's not why people, like if you believe, if it's a true belief, like if you, I don't believe in flesh-eating viruses. I don't believe in like those weird right. wasps that like plant right. parasitic things and like caterpillars and rip, like eat them alive. Like I don't believe in those things because I want them to be true. I believe that they're simply true. So he, he he makes that confusion a lot. You know, I personally, I've always kind of liked the fig tree story. It's partly because it is so ridiculous and partly because I read it as a fucking parable. Like, I think I think there's like one tiny degree of difference between like him telling a story about a fig tree not being ripe and then somebody writing down like, and then he smote the fig tree. Like, I, totally. I think like it's an interesting I, parable and that's all about all that matters to me, you know? And what you're talking about with heaven and hell, I think it, it gets to the point that, that I find most difficult about reading this in the same way that I find it very difficult to read arguments about politics with which i entirely agree because yeah. it's like here's a long list of reasons why women should have the right to terminate pregnancies in the first trimester sure. like i don't i don't need a list of those arguments right. yeah, like yeah, i yeah. of course women should have the right to do that sure, sure, you know sure, yeah, yeah. Or, or like like i i don't like um wh wh why should we be able to have ak 47 like right. sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. right is it 47 ak 47 yeah yeah, AR-15 is the one number. everybody gets mad about right now. Right, but, yeah. but it's like, why should people, like, people shouldn't have those. I think they to... are already illegal, I think. Or I think, well, like, again, most people why... can't own them, yeah. Like in the U.S. But, but right. anyway, go on, yeah. My, my point is, when I read those articles saying, like, guns of war should not be considered sure. part of the Second Amendment. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to I, like, I don't need a lot of examples for that. Like, yeah. I, I already agree. And, and that was part of what I found frustrating about this. Bertrand Russell piece that he's not going farther than like making fun of people who already disagree with what I disagree with, except he, he writes this very strange thing about science at the end, which I found as uncompelling as his thing about religion. So yeah. he says, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Go he says, yeah, yeah. Science can help us. So, he, you know, he feels like he needs to like put in an answer at the end because yeah. he spends so much time taking away what people believe in. And he says, science can help us to get over this craven fear in which mankind has lived for so many generations. Previously, he blames um, that fear for causing religion. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, 
no longer to look around for imaginary supports, the implication there is religion, mm -hmm. no longer to invent allies in the sky, God, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in, instead of the sort of place that the churches in all these centuries have made it. Yeah. How, 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 how is science going to do that? Like, I don't, well, well, like, may, you, maybe, his, his, but, but like, you're not explaining yeah. any of that. Like, there, there's no, yeah. th that's no, no more like, uh, rationally solid than religion. No. I mean, he, he, he says, he says at one point, you find this curious fact that the more intense has been the religion of any period, the more profound has been the dogmatic belief, the greater has been the cruelty and the worse has been the state of affairs. And that was said five years after Stalin took power in Russia and six years before Hitler was elected chancellor of Germany. So like, that's silly. And, and it's totally yeah. silly. And, and suggesting that the reason why science hasn't created a utopia is because of religion oh, and not no, because we don't know silly. how to create utopias right. is, <laughs> is just yeah. silly you, you yeah, know he, so it's like yeah. it 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 leaves me thinking that like okay like you just tore apart this system of beliefs that you don't believe in and that i don't believe in and that i don't know anybody who believes in but like you don't have any more answers you're just a, no. a nihilist like the rest of us and right yeah he said he says at one point that like it's so ridiculous that religious people think religion makes men virtuous it doesn't make men virtuous but then he goes on to say like i guess like getting rid of religion and increasing like the acceptance of science makes people virtuous and my response is like nothing makes people virtuous exactly like people in the past like religious civilizations exactly. historically have been worse because most of them have been religious so far and like we will be like nothing makes people virtuous. right i took it took me back to your argument like all trends are fake like right like, tr there's there are no trends people are always there are some good people most people are so so and there's some horrible people and that's gonna they're gonna find whatever whatever society they live in whatever belief structure they're they encounter they're going to find new reasons to be horrible to each other but that's not native to religion but not right. and that's, and that's also not to say to that there aren't certain belief structures that are that worse are really than bad others. oh totally. right like yeah, like yeah, yeah. belief structures that oppress the majority of the people so a minority can live better are worse belief structures than yeah those who allow more people to yeah. have happier lives but that, yeah. that i agree um often can correspond with religion but then you have the correlation you know causation argument yeah sort of i think very I, I, that's where i get i get very you. marxist where i think like a lot of belief structures especially as they're taught over time tend to tend to correlate pretty strongly to like the interests of those who have the most power including marxism Oh, uh, yeah, in some cases. Yeah. Right. So th that's where it gets. Yes. No, no. Like I'm saying like I, I but like, I mean, this is like, this is partly why I, I like reading people who have big, all comprehensive theories of the world, not because I want to accept any of them, but because I find they often like show me an interesting new way to look at things. And I, I think like, Mar that's why like Marxism is totally a useful way. Like it's a really good critique. It's a really bad proposal has been my experience with it. Okay, but like, then yeah. where does this James Matthew Wilson piece help you find new ways of looking at things? Are, are you familiar with him as a poet? Is this somebody you, yes. you've, you've read? So, yes. So I discovered him in graduate school uh, and I read probably, I think, every one of his like 80,000 word essays on 
uh, avant-garde and experimental poetry in the uh, Contemporary Poetry Review. He's a very smart and learned critic. He's way more learned than I am. He's, I think he, I have not read enough of his poetry to say of what I've read. I'd say he's a better critic than a poet. What does he feel about avant-garde poetry? He tends to think that it is uh, not worthwhile. But oh, he, well, that's what I was, addressed, I was hoping like, you were going to say the opposite. No, well, but I'll say like he 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 definitely goes to the trouble of pretty deeply understanding what he's talking about before. Like it's it's certainly not like vitriol. Like Joan Houlihan is also fun to read, but she's more of a firebrand who's sort of fun in a in a cathartic way. His essays, I will say, have the virtue of being sort of boring in that they like, well, let's really try to understand this. Right. So like I, I you know, like I, I think he's a pretty smart critic. I think his his great weakness and his strength as a critic is that he's an almost cripplingly systematic thinker. And I think in this case, this argument, that th- this particular essay made me crazy, but it reading it helped me identify some of the problems that I think were in the Russell essay. So I think he writes almost, he's way less entertaining than Russell. He's way less funny. He's way less of a good rhetorician, but he's, I think he makes almost all the same mistakes that Russell How makes. How did you find this? I don't even remember. It it popped up when I, I think like I was searching for the first things article and this popped up somehow, but okay. it was like in some, in some string of searches for something else related to poetry or religion or whatever, it popped up. Uh, but like, so how does he make I've, the I've same mistakes? For a while. Uh, yeah. Great. So how does he make the same mistakes as Russell? So he he takes up uh, a. I'll just read the beginning because it's it's like it, it's a maddening beginning to an article. Uh, he says, "The other night, I watched a few minutes of the comedian Ricky Gervais's new comedy show. Early in, he does a bit about his atheism and his willingness, nonetheless, to abide expressions of religious devotion. By way of example, he says." If one of my family is very ill, they say, I'll pray for them. I say, thanks very much, because it's a nice gesture. If they say, we also canceled the chemotherapy, I'd go, don't do that, don't do that. Let's go. The, let's do the praying and the chemotherapy, shall we? Gervais' audience laughs, but most people would not find this a very perceptive, perceptive bit of humor. Who exactly are these religious persons who think that prayer should be a substitute for medicine and that the two are mutu- somehow mutually exclusive? And like, the answer to that question is, well, like Christian scientists and Jehovah's Witnesses. But like, right. I most, mean, there but is like an most, answer but to like, that. It, it right? is a strong, like that's very, it's a very, very small minority of religious people. But who why would. is he using this weird hook to, to it, write this essay? It's because I, it, because it's it, a joke. I mean, who, right. who no, takes exactly. anything it's a joke. Ricky Gervais it's, says yeah. seriously? Like he's, yeah. he's it, Ricky Gervais, the reason why that joke is funny is in the Netflix special, he uses different voices for the different yeah. characters. He's a good comedian. So he's a, he, his he's a, timing he's a good delivery. Good. His, yeah, his, his, right. So he, exactly. he sneaks in very quickly. Yeah. We he, also canceled the, the chemotherapy. Right. That, that That's yeah. like a, a surprising thing to hear. Yeah, so it, it's it, it, it makes right. you laugh because you, you think he's yeah. going to do anti-religious stuff because that's what he's known for. But instead, he talks about how these people whom he who he just said did a nice gesture wants to cancel the, the cancel the chemotherapy and he says it in like a fast way that is you know a little like um making fun of himself and and like it's just good delivery so it's a yeah. it's a joke I, 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 I think I think I think James Arthur Wilson is, is making sort of the same mistake that a lot of people make when they when they a- a- attack comedy from the left for being insufficiently virtuous I think totally, like, but yeah, it's a totally silly way to start an, uh, a, an essay about why uh, atheism is fundamentally more impoverished than theism, 
he he has a so he does something Bertrand Russell does a fair amount of which is play a lot of word games like this both of these essays felt to me at times like the peak of philosophy as as like pointless verbal dithering um, totally agree i have an example on page one i don't know whether yes. you have a different example but i in in where i first got very frustrated with his um logic is he writes in gervaise's first comment the one that you and i have just been discussing he seems to assume that the causes of things must be singular mm -hmm. and so multiple claims about causes must be mutually exclusive with one being okay, true yeah. and the other false so just to tease that out a little bit that is in the joke in the joke he's saying the thing that will cure cancer is chemotherapy not prayer so if you want to pray go ahead and pray but make sure the thing that cures cancer is going on too the chemotherapy but why would that be that the causes of all things therefore must be singular so you yeah, think no, that it's, it's that, a, it's a that joke implies that ricky gervais couldn't say that like the reason i fall in love with her is because i find her pretty and funny like i it, it doesn't make any any sense no, it's, it's just it's, like it's, a it's, massive there, there's a name for that there, yeah there's a name for that logical fallacy that basically is like trying to generalize the specific in a in a way that, right. that is not fair my my question about all of this because i i is why did he write what is this what type of what <laughs> I, what yeah. genre is this like i, I don't I think yeah i think I, this is this is this is the this is the extreme weakness of his systematic mind i think he i think i think because i do take him to be someone who writes in very good faith. I think he probably literally saw this. Uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to speculate in a way that's probably not kind, but like, I think he probably saw this special, started off on a rant to his wife. His wife said, I need to put the kids to bed. Go ahead. And then he, he sat down and he worked out all the implications and he is smart and he knows all the implications. And then he is the equivalent in, of like Ada Lamone or, or, or Garth Greenwell in, in a certain context in which like, just because he wrote this, somebody was going to publish it. And like the conservative... Catholic educated poetry world, he can get anything he writes published, just the way as plenty of people in a different world can. But but presumably that there was a an editor. Nope. Like, I, I would bet money there was not. Really? In, a, in any meaningful way. What does this mean? So th this is on my page four of five, but it's in the paragraph that starts with the word oneness. It's the final three sentences. Um, I don't think you're going to be able to follow it if I read it out loud. Oh, I guess everybody in the podcast will have to, so you can yeah. deal with that as well. But tell me what this means at a literal level. Because the truth about something must be understood in terms of its causes, and the final cause, the purpose of its being, is the most important one, all beings are also good. If we could not perceive goodness in things, we could not perceive the truth about them either. Goodness must therefore be the third property common to all beings. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what any of those words mean in that order. Yeah. I mean, he, he's he's taking. I, so I get lost in that too, totally. And he's he I, again. I think here's here's my suspicion is that from a purely scholarly perspective, because he is reading, and my, I, I would guarantee you he's read all this stuff in great depth and with great learning. He's taking some of these terms from Aristotle when it comes to goodness, or that may have, sorry, that may have been Aquinas, maybe doing the same thing you were doing earlier. Um, but my guess is that in a scholarly fashion, that checks out because he's so good at that. But it means 
fuck all to any like reasonable reader who's just coming upon it without being like deep in the textual weeds with him. So I think I think that's how this whole article came out. I think he he his incredibly powerful systematic mind got going and he couldn't turn it off and then he and then somebody said okay I'll publish it as is. And I think like that that like this is a far less prominent venue and a far less prominent writer than say Garth Greenwell's silly comments in LitHub. But just as I think with Garth Greenwell, like he has clearly written lots of smart and worthwhile things, but he's also in a position where like he can just he can just sort of gush something out and it'll get published. That's the same thing that happens in this other world of like conservative literary thought. I think it's just it's a like James Matthew Wilson has many smart and worthwhile things to write and say. This is not one of them, but it gets published anyway. Um, and it's part it's partly because he's preaching to the choir and partly just because uh, he's fucking the smartest guy in the room. And so they say, okay, whatever you say, whatever. Like you, he's making love with the smartest guy in the room or he, he's uh, fucking, he oh, fucking yeah, no, sorry. is he, he the is, smartest guy he is, in the I mean, I think, I think he is the smartest guy in many of the rooms he's in and maybe most of the rooms he's in. Um, so what's the... He also, he also does a thing that Bertrand Russell does like explicitly, which is tell a cute story, the moral of which is the person who believes the opposite thing from me is a child. Like explicitly. Like Bertrand Russell says, like Kant was taught to believe in God at, at his mother's knee and he sucked it in like milk and that's why he believes in God. He's a child. And then James Matthew Wilson has a whole thing about like, well, my kids believed that the, thought the dead snake skin was beautiful, but then they lost interest because they're children and they don't, they, are, they have a shallow vision of things. But his larger argument seems to be that like, whether you're using like, like Aristotelian math or not to do it, like a, an atheist vision <laughs> I, of the world is fundamentally impoverished compared to a theistic vision of the world. Like that seems to be his sort of basic, basic claim here. It's a thinner, flatter vision of the world. And, and like, I can contest some of his arguments to that effect, but my first response is sort of to step back and say like, well, maybe so, but that doesn't mean it's not the case. Like, it seems like a strange... I mean, that doesn't mean it's real. Right. I mean, it's the same thing as, right. like, hell shouldn't... Like, it's the same thing as Russell saying, like, you shouldn't believe in hell because what a mean thing to believe. He's saying, like, you shouldn't believe there's no God because how much more interesting is the world if there is a God? Is it self-delusion? Is it... No, no, no. I don't I, th I don't think it's self-delusion. I think it's I think it's a, it's a failure in both cases to sufficiently imagine the minds of others. I think I think both of them are saying like the person who disagrees with me is is not to be taken seriously as an adult. That was the first half of my conversation with Brian about Leopardi and James Matthew Wilson and Bertrand Russell and company. To hear the second half, go to sleerickets.substack.com and uh, sign up for The Secret Show. You will get bonus episodes of the show along with, maybe I, I have a question I may be putting to some of the subscribers soon about the logo, so uh, keep an eye out for that. And if you have not yet subscribed, go there now. You won't regret it. Thanks very much to all of you for listening. And I, uh, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.